0: Hello, and welcome to The Grand Stories, Profiles in Aging podcast. My name is Dr. Robert Cosby of the Howard University School of Social Works Multidisciplinary Gerontology Center. I will be your host as we talk about aging and equity with social justice leaders and community members. I look forward to your being with us. Well, hello, and welcome to another edition of Grand Stories, Profiles in Aging. I'm glad to be with you. Uh, We have a great personality and a person of great expertise, uh, Miss Patricia martin O'Mealy, And she is a social worker, a social work pioneer. She is a person who has been in several communities, both doing her working, her social justice issues, and um, I think you're going to really enjoy this discussion. And so uh, I have her here with me, and so let's begin. Um, Welcome. How are you today? And thank you for
1: joining Grand Stories. Well, thank you for inviting me to join you. Um, It's a beautiful day, uh, and I'm very happy to be here. Unfortunately, we Howard women lost. I just rushed in from watching the game uh, and was uh, sorry to to see the loss with South Carolina.
0: Okay, well, uh, Uh, South Carolina is, uh, I think, picked to be the number one rank. So absolutely. uh, So uh, they they, uh, they went down in style, I guess you could say.
1: Absolutely.
0: It went down, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh so uh that's the nature of competition. And uh for those of you that don't know, we're talking uh women's college basketball and the NCAA championships. Uh so uh, uh welcome again. Uh Miss Martin O'Mealy is just really uh steeped in A lot of social work, and uh, I, as often is the case, there are many, many intersections with, uh, with social work, and uh, we've had a few, uh, but I'll, uh, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. I want to make sure that you all feel that this is, in fact, something that you find interesting. But I don't have any, any reservations in saying that I think you're going to be impressed. So, uh, can you
1: tell me a little bit about yourself? Well, I um, my story begins in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I was born and raised. Uh, my mother uh, and a good friend of hers who had been one of her patients, my mother was a nurse. And uh, Judy was a MSW graduate of the University of Pittsburgh. And uh, they kind of put their heads together and um, thought that, Social work was a good career for me. What did I know? (laughs) So I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to be Perry Mason. Uh, Well, anyway, they convinced me, I believe, that uh, social work was something that interested me because I was interested in people. My mother brought me up as a Girl Scout. Um, My father was kind of quiet on the issue, I don't recall. Uh, but I was uh, active and busy in, in uh, elementary school and the Brownies and the Girl Scouts and intermediate and senior Scouts. And my mother also, um, well, she was the one who uh, uh, revitalized the Scout Girl Scout troop in our neighborhood. Uh, and she also established a group called the... Um, um, busy bee missionaries at our church. So that kept me busy <laughs> and out of trouble uh, and doing things that uh, were interesting to people, about people and what was going on with them. Uh, something that uh, struck me um, as a, something that I would remember was visiting a lady across the way from our school, uh, elementary school, and her name was Mother Washington, or at least that's how she was uh, called. And she was 100 years old. And she told us how it was as a young girl being freed uh, from slavery and how they danced in the streets. And that always had a strong impact on me how that must have been. And we would visit her once, at least once a year. So I'm assuming that she lived beyond 100. Um, Mother Washington. Mother Washington is what she was referred to. Um, I don't know what any other name for her, but she was old and, uh, but she was very sharp, mentally very sharp. And Uh, We would stand around and ask her questions, and um, it was always an interesting visit to go visit Mother Washington across the street from the school. (laughs)
0: Okay, well, Um, it sounds like you were were, uh, sort of immersed in the beginnings of uh, oral history as well as social work from a young age. Um, You had mentioned something earlier to me uh, about how you had met Josephine Baker. Um, Can you tell tell me again and tell the audience a little bit about that story?
1: Well, I was a student at the Carolyn Howe School of Dance in Pittsburgh, and um, Josephine Baker came to town and my mother thought it would be just wonderful for me to go and see Josephine Baker. I believe it was the Warner Theater in downtown Pittsburgh. And her best friend, uh, Aunt, who I called Aunt Mary Margaret, uh, the three of us went. And uh, at some point we were asked to come out of our seats and up to the stage, or at least the children, But I do remember that uh, there were a lot of white kids and um, Josephine Baker reached down uh, for my mother to hand me up to her. So I was hugged by Josephine Baker on the stage. She had all these feathers and glitter and glitz. And I was wondering, was that going to be something that would happen to me as a little dance student? And certainly we did have kermises uh, and we did have costumes, but never anything as elegant and as theatrical as Josephine Baker. But we did have Mike Malone, uh, who became quite um, renowned uh, and was one of the founders of the, I believe, the Washington, D.C. School of the Performing Arts. And at some point he also ran the, uh, the School of Performing Hearts at Howard University. So I just remember following him around and learning how to do the slap ball change and all these different dance steps. And some of my, some of my students went on to Broadway. Some of my classmates, that is, went on to Broadway. And, um, um, but I didn't, I went into social work. <laughs> Uh, but I do remember in high school joining SNCC. Uh, there, there wasn't a lot of time for that because I had to work. My mother told me if I was going to college, which she insisted, that um, I didn't have time for a lot of uh, outside activities. I had work to save work and save money. But uh, Judy uh, Cohen was very instrumental in. Um, my thinking about um, social work as a profession, and even after I uh, graduated, she had her ideas about what social work was, and she uh, used her influence to get me interviewed. Judy was a Jewish woman, um, mother and uh, children in the Pittsburgh area, her and her husband Sid, who I believe was a basketball star in his heydays of college, and um, uh, she actually arranged for my first interview at Family and Child Services of Washington, D.C., through a good friend of hers whose name I cannot remember, but um, that was my first professional job was uh, after graduation from Virginia Union University, and there that was during the sixties very busy year nineteen sixty eight if you want me to go there and talk about yeah please the unrest in the universities of the uh historically black colleges and universities and Virginia. you
0: were a graduate, you said, of of, uh, Virginia Union University, and that time, I guess, Virginia Union College, right? No. It was a university back then as well. Oh, absolutely. uh, And that was in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, Yeah. And so, uh, you were explaining some of the experiences that you had. Um, So, go ahead, please.
1: Well, there was uh, a lot of unrest. Um, We were uh, entering my um, senior year, the second, second semester of my senior year. Now we had done some things uh, earlier on, some demonstrating, some marching on. Richmond was the capital, of course, of Virginia, marching on the capital uh, related to uh, some racial discrimination issues and the killing of Reverend Reed from Massachusetts who had gone down to Selma and actually he is uh, mentioned in the film, Selma. Uh, He was murdered because he had come to help African-Americans register to vote. So we we marched on the capital of Richmond. Actually, there's a photo of me and my roommate uh, in the yearbook of that year, 1965. But in 68, um, there was a lot of unrest, um, a lot of demonstrating, taking over the administration building, sleeping in the administration building. Uh, and it was kind of coming to a, well, we didn't know what it was gonna come to, where we we're gonna get sent home or just what, but uh, classes weren't being held at some point. We were having big discussions in the auditorium uh, and well, actually, it was the gymnasium uh, um, that would be large enough to hold everybody. and uh, I was one of the speakers and trying to get some calm and trying to get people to talk with each other and not at each other. And um, it was a little very frustrating and my best friend was in college at Temple University in Philadelphia, and there was unrest up there. And she said, well, why don't you come up and um, help us to organize since you've been doing all this organizing down at Virginia Union? So I got a, a ticket, took the bus to Philadelphia, and as we were sitting down to dinner that Friday afternoon at five, it came across the news that Martin Luther King had been shot and presumed to be dead. Uh, and so everything just broke loose, the riding and uh, I, I was, you know, really didn't know exactly what to do. So I had this round trip bus ticket and uh, the, activities that I was to participate in at Temple were canceled. Everything was canceled in Pennsylvania. Uh, I contacted my parents and they said, well, the city's been shut down in Pittsburgh and um, uh, we can't send you any money because we can't get to Western Union. We can't do anything. So I went back to Richmond and by the time I got back there, the school had closed. I had nowhere to stay. It was just very stressful. But I, uh, my good friend, um, off-campus housing mothers uh, allowed me to to stay there overnight, and then I was heading to uh, to Norfolk, where my roommate had, and her family had invited me for Easter. This was Easter weekend. It was just really something I, and never forget, driving through the bus, driving through Washington, D.C. with the smoke and the streets closed and the, the, um, the guard out with their bayonets, and uh, they did let the bus pass, and we did get to Richmond, but Richmond had also had a a riot, insurrection of sorts. And so uh, it it was uh, hard getting around. No no buses were running. But somehow I did get to Norfolk (laughs) on that Sunday, Easter Sunday morning. So um, uh, my senior semester was um, full of a lot of of, uh, turmoil and uh, classmates were jailed uh, and um, told that they would never graduate from Virginia Union University, but they were able to take their credits elsewhere and finish school. But it it was heartbreaking, a lot of it, Uh, but I did graduate. The Poor People's March came through uh, Richmond on its way to Washington, D.C. And uh, remember, we giving a lot of clothes and things uh, and um, really uh, was pretty let down about what my senior year <laughs> was gonna be like. Uh, I, I spent the summer and, and uh, one of, uh, at the home of one of my roommates uh, having a great time, going to the beach. This was in New Jersey going to the beach, having fun, going to parties, going to New York City to apply for jobs and uh, ended up in uh back home in Pittsburgh uh and Judy um kind of felt that I should uh consider going to Richmond, uh, going to DC and a- apply for a job uh through a friend of hers. And so that's what happened. Um, I went down to, uh, I mean, I came down here to Washington, D.C. I had an interview with uh, John Theban and uh, his uh, director, I can't think of his name, uh, and Margaret Moore, who was uh, the head of the uh, senior program at Family and Child. And when by the time I got back to um, home, I got a call that I had the job, so I had always said I'd never live in washington dC It was the hottest place I had ever been as a child. and uh, so but I came, and I've been here for over 50 years. <laughs> okay, it's,
0: uh It sort of grows on you. Uh, and so uh, you were explaining that from the Poor People's March, which was, I guess, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and others had, uh, um, had this uh, uh, peaceful rally or marches that were in several cities leading up to the, the major one, which was uh, at uh, the, the Lincoln Memorial, I believe. Yeah. Uh, and so
1: that became... Uh, they built the tent city,
0: yes,
1: and um, there there were uh, it, it was kind of jubilant uh, to have them because we had been through all kinds of uh, bomb scares and we had to evacuate the dormitories and whatnot. I mean that senior year <laughs> I will never forget it. It's just um, nerve-wracking. So that's
0: an interesting comparison contrast, because uh, for our listeners, um, uh, the issue of of creating oppression and trauma were very much real back in that day. And in more recent times, uh, after the last um, uh, administration at the federal level, um, many people said that some of those same feelings were returning, and those uh, feelings were uh, where people felt that they were being uh, re-traumatized because of issues associated with bomb threats at many of the historic, historically Black colleges and universities. Um, and uh, even more recently, at, uh, at Howard University, uh, they've actually had, I believe, uh, uh, several that have taken place within the last six months. And so uh, students and faculty and staff and others have been uh, traumatized to some level about what to do about those things uh, from closing down the school to having uh, people uh, shelter in place to other types of issues of that sort. But you were saying um, your experiences um, prepared you in part. So, you were talking a little bit about your experiences at uh, at uh, Family and Child Services of Washington, D.C. Um, can you talk to, to me and to our listeners about uh, what you thought to be some of your most memorable contributions uh, from that time that you were at Family and Child Services of Washington, D.C.? Yes,
1: yeah, so that was sort of the springboard. It was my first uh, job as a professional. Uh and I was working with this special project on the elderly with Margaret Moore, who was a social worker t- who came out of retirement to run this program. And uh and Texana Williams, who was a real grassroots person uh in the Washington community, and uh, where she had she and her husband were raising their family. Uh, and, and she knew a lot she she knew a lot of people. Margaret was an excellent clinician, and um, they taught me quite a bit. And there was a lot of training available because uh, there was a program called Project Find where people were actually going out into the community, finding the elderly and getting them connected so that they could uh, get resources from various programs. So. um, I did a lot with my little elderly folks, and um, I did a lot of negotiating for them with their um, department stores, where they've held um, uh, they held credit cards for years and years, and uh, they they just did not have the income to keep up with a, um, a lot of the expense as they retired on social security, if, they, if that. And uh, so I would go to Cans and Woody's and Garfinkel's and talk with the management about keeping their monthly credit card payment to $10. Those were uh as I recall, uh I know
0: for Woodward and Lothrop and Garfinkel's uh Woody's as they used to call Wood Woodward and Lothrop, uh were considered some of the high-end major department stores of their time, right?
1: Correct. Correct.
0: And so you were uh-huh. able to help them in getting uh their their uh charges or credit card charges, interest charges uh removed and uh allowing them to only have to pay, you said, $10 a year? No, no, $10 a month. $10 a month, I see, okay. Yeah. And what so, kinds yeah. of things would they buy with that? Just well,
1: no, uh, I'll tell you, the thing that strikes me the most was they needed a new Easter hat. You know, this was really important for them as uh, churchgoers to have a beautiful uh, bonnet for Easter Sunday. So I primarily
0: would, older black women?
1: Yes. Uh, yes. Um, so
0: you helped them to be able to uh, get their credit card payments, to be able to get these new hats.
1: Exactly.
0: Wow. Okay. And so what happened
1: then? Uh, well, uh, we were successful and uh, the store kind of liked uh, this benevolence. And uh, so it, it, it worked out. Um, I had some, uh, I had, I remember one elderly white client, her father had been a congressman and uh, her mother was deceased and she was sort of the escort, female escort for her dad over the years. And she never had a job. Her father always took care of all of her expenses. Well, when he died, She had never worked. She had never paid into social security. She had no income. And when his money ran out, she was in dire straits. I remember convincing her that she should accept food stamps. And, uh, oh, that was just a horrible thing. Uh, She finally agreed that yes, she would take the food stamps and she wanted a ham for Easter. And she had gone to the grocery store and she had selected a ham that she thought was very reasonably priced. And then she took it up to the cashier with the food stamps and they denied her purchase because the ham was from Canada. Mm -hmm. It was a Canadian ham. And they said only... um, things within the United States could be purchased with food stamps. Well, she was so embarrassed. And I tell you, she died shortly after that. And I always felt that she died of a broken heart and that uh, she just couldn't tolerate that kind of embarrassment. And She
0: felt she was humiliated because she had been in line waiting to pay for this ham and then had presented the, food stamps, and they had denied him.
1: Yes. And you had out.
0: helped to to get to her the food stamps. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think that's sort of a universal issue among many social workers, that they think about those those uh, ways that they've helped clients, and then it kind of boomerangs back on them, and they don't get quite the help they thought they were going to receive. Yes. Uh, but, but, but those are very tough times. Yes. Go ahead.
1: Oh, um, it, it taught me a lot about systems and what you need to know. Now that has been removed. Uh, we certainly sent it up the line to say this is a horrible thing to happen to an elderly person to have have paid taxes all their life and get this kind of treatment. So that that has been removed. Nobody cares where the ham came from. Uh, she needed the nourishment. Um, uh, there was another client that really comes to mind who had um, also not worked. Uh, this was an African American woman who was uh, um, married by uh, married a man who was very well to do in New York City. Uh, and uh, he saw her picture and said, I'm, I'm going to marry that lady. And so uh, her cousin um, introduced them and he did, they did marry. And he was a man of means and real estate and he, she traveled abroad. He, he never went on any of these trips. She always went accompanied by a, a couple or uh, an, uh, another friend. But anyway, she lived a very good life, but when he died, uh, she was living off of uh, his real estate, apartment buildings, and whatnot. And um, I cannot think of the term, but basically, the people who managed the property were bleeding the property. They were taking the rents. They were not keeping the buildings up, and so she ended up with all kinds of legal um, encumbrances. And I was able to find a lawyer who was a about her age, and they were both about 78 or 80. And he said, I'll take her case. He, he had been in practice, law practice for many years. He said, I'll take her case. She went up to New York. He cleared up all of the um, debts and whatnot and got her out of all of those encumbrances. And uh, of course she lost all the properties, but she, In her seventies, took a job as a uh, a uh, teaching assistant here in Washington D.C. She worked until her car just gave out, (laughs) and of course she couldn't afford to uh, get another car. But it just gave her enough quarters to qualify for social security, and uh, that was sort of a difference between some of my white clients who just didn't have the same kind of life experience as my black clients had, had and therefore they seemed to be able to ride out some of the storms a lot easier so Mary um, um, was you know uh, able to get a small check, but at some point in our time together it wasn't enough for her to really sustain the apartment she had off of Georgia Avenue on Taylor Street. Very nice apartment, very nice building. And I won't go into all the details. But um, what could we do for Mary? Mary um, was in her uh, late 80s. By this time, she did not have any, any, anything that she could uh, use as an asset, and basically, um, I applied for uh, senior foster care, which was a service that used to be available in uh, in Washington, D.C. They call it um, CRF now, community residence facilities, but at that time, and she didn't want that, and I knew that Older people, you have to be so careful about placing them, about moving them <clears throat> as they as they age. Sometimes it has to be done, but sometimes the result is just not worth the effort. So um, I went to her apartment management and asked if they could make her section eight, and. Um, They said, well, we'll look into it. And and the time was coming when she was gonna have to move. And we waited and waited and we took her to different places and she was unhappy with everything she came in contact with. So I reluctantly called the apartment management back uh, and I said, you know, I called a month or two ago about Miss Mary and Uh, you were going to get back to me on whether or not you could apply for Section 8 for her. And they said, well, we looked into it, and it was so much involved, so much paperwork. And for one um, resident, it was just too much. We just can't do it. So I was like, oh, this is horrible. And, uh, And they said, so we just decided we'll make the rent uh at a level that she can afford and she can stay there until she till she dies
0: (laughs) wow Wow. so uh so you did uh intercede in a very positive way so she was able to get her uh her rent reduced to something she could afford she didn't have to get into any federal programs like uh section eight and therefore she was able to uh live out her years sounds like in uh the way she wanted to maintain her independence and her dignity, et cetera.
1: Absolutely, it was wonderful, but it it taught me a great lesson, which I think I've shared with a lot of my students at Howard School of Social Work, and that is be willing to take the no. You know, you don't want to hear the no, and I could have just said, well, I never heard back from them, but uh, I was willing to have them tell me no but I was delighted that the answer was yes. <laughs> we'll work with you on this. So uh, it, it, it means that um, we have to be willing to, to um, stiffen our back and be willing to hear bad news, even if it's on behalf of our client. Uh, but you just never know. You just never know. Uh, where that yes might be, or even it might have been an opportunity for some other negotiation, maybe she could have moved to an efficiency or, you know, but if I had never called them back, I would have never known. And she might have died very shortly after having placed her into one of these um, CRFs. CRFs. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> no, no, it's okay. Uh, uh, who are the persons that most
1: influenced you and in your thinking and and why? Well, um, I will try to pull two things together. One is um, from my work with the elderly, I was uh, a, a nominated and appointed to the Prince George's County Landlord Tenant Commission because I had done all of this so, all this negotiating with the landlords, especially on behalf of the elderly. And uh, a gentleman who really influenced me was named Paul Olson. He was a oil lobbyist from uh, Oregon. And, and he and others had formed a tenant federation here in Prince George's County With the idea that tenants needed to have a voice. So uh, Paul taught me a lot about lobbying and uh, about having uh, hard fists under a velvet glove and some other lessons (laughs) that he taught. uh, Say that that analogy again because
0: I've heard it before in political settings but um, Uh, he said an an iron fist in a (laughs) velvet glove.
1: Yes, but you cover it with a velvet glove. And this is how you enter into your negotiations with the ve- velvet glove showing. But if if it gets tough, you pull that velvet glove off and you show them that iron fist. So as a lobbyist, Paul knew a lot. He knew a lot of people. And, um, and at some point I became the vice president of the uh, Prince George's County Tenant Federation Uh, And so that led me into a lot of uh, work with tenants and um, helping them to have a voice, helping them to become incorporated, uh, showing the county that even though we were renters and that the landlord paid uh, the mortgage and uh, paid the taxes, that we felt that we should have a voice in what was happening in the county. So um, that was uh, very interesting. I was with that um, Landlord-Tenant Commission for about nine years, and about seven years into that commission, I was appointed to the Governor's Landlord-Tenant Laws Study Commission for the state of Maryland, and, uh, and had the opportunity to work um, in addition to landlords, but judges and lawyers, Uh, and and helping to write legislation to benefit uh, tenants in the throughout the state. Wow. So um, and that was that was like 20 something, (laughs) 23, 24, somewhere in that neighborhood. 1973 was my Prince George's appointment, and I think uh, maybe around 1980, I was appointed to the uh, governor's commission. <clears throat> and um, it was just very interesting work. Uh,
0: uh, and so in that work, uh, you, you obviously had to deal with some social justice related issues, uh, advocating on behalf of the oppressed and advocating for uh, many people of color and others who were being put out of their housing. Uh, and we know the issue right now is related to affordable housing. Um, was still an issue back then, but I think more so even now with gentrification. Uh, what would you say now about how um, what you've seen in terms of the changes in housing and tenant relationships and the loss of uh, of rent control? Uh, what what would you say is happening now and what might be some fixes that you might think would be appropriate?
1: Well, the whole issue around uh, discrimination, uh, and and this happened to me several times. I applied for apartments, and when I would show up and they'd see my face, the apartments would no longer available. available. And uh, they had people that they called testers. They would send out the a white couple, and then they'd send out a black couple and see sure. what the responses were. And so a lot of that we looked into in terms of the um, main, mainly the the state. Uh, so they commission. were
0: following the fair housing laws and looking at uh, the issues related to human relations offices and trying to uh, to test to see if, in fact, there was discrimination taking place. In other words, uh, real estate agents and uh, and uh, folks who were interested in renting uh, buildings or houses or purchasing uh, or allowing people to purchase homes, uh, what they did for whites was the same as they did for other minority groups. Um, but we know from some of that work that what you found is that there was lots of systemic racism and lots of discrimination. Um, you learned firsthand. Can you tell us a little about how that
1: worked? uh well we um as i said we, they sent out testers i just feel that um there were people who were just intent on not allowing especially african americans move into certain areas and um that is, has gone on up until i would say maybe within the last 20 years, a lot of that is kind of gone by the wayside. Uh, but you always find somebody that pops up who still uh, if they have, if they have the power, uh, they're going to uh, discriminate. And um, so we have laws and when people do uh violate the law, then they're going to to receive a fine. And they're gonna get uh, be penalized uh, and um, this is what has this is what we have to do it has there has to be a cost uh, so you're saying in- that
0: perhaps the cost associated I know that uh, many uh, real estate people uh, basically say that government fines are the cost of doing business, um, and it does in fact happen. Uh, Do you think that increasing the the fines uh, in terms of the amount of money that they are fined would help to level the playing field, or do you think that there are other remedies that should be enacted.
1: Well, uh, as I said, sitting on a landlord tenant commission, uh, we looked into all of those uh, issues we people would bring complaints. Um, uh, Different legislators would uh, bring uh, legislation that they thought should be passed. So we used any um, means that we could to try to remedy the situation. Um, We would often talk to the housing and urban development people in the state or the county. Uh, whichever the case might be, uh, to hear how they were handling these cases. Um, And uh, where possible, um, people had to um, make those apartments available. Uh, uh, Very little that I do related to single family properties, although we did uh, develop legislation in Prince George's County related to single family uh, housing as well as uh, multi, multi-family housing.
0: Yes. Uh, thank you. Uh, so in light of that, I mean, um, what are the most important social justice issues of today? Do you, do you think based on this housing rank right up there? What might be some of the others?
1: Well, I think voting has to be a number one. <laughs> we have to have a uh, free and open, in a free and open society, people have to have the ability to vote, and it should not be uh, inhibited in any way. And uh, anything that we can do to inform people that they have the right to vote, that they need to vote, that their voice counts, that this is a democracy, and and for For many, many years, a lot of people have not felt that their vote counted, and they didn't vote. But um, people are beginning to understand now that their money is being used in some ways uh, to benefit other people other than themselves. So their um, money,
0: you're talking about their money as taxpayers,
1: as taxpayers, correct. And,
0: and so it's being used by by uh folks against them or at least uh, not in their best interest. Uh, so right. when you say that, do, does that mean that okay, so you say voting's at the top? Um I, I remember I understand uh and I appreciate that. Um and I would say I share that sentiment, but I would also ask you the question, um, you know, our, our democracy for its good and bad. Uh, they They often use the analogy no 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 disrespect to those vegetarians, but they sort of say it 's like uh making sausage you don 't want to know how it 's made necessarily, but you do want to enjoy it when it 's uh, completed uh, uh, but we recognized that very often uh, social justice issues uh percolated up to the the surface with particularly egregious events that have taken place in our society. And we've seen more recently with uh, George Floyd, we saw with uh, Michael Brown, we saw even with uh, Breonna Taylor, and the list goes on and on. Um, but we've seen at a, uh, an institutional level that we can't get uh, voting rights legislation passed in Congress to make it permanent uh we cannot uh we're having difficulties being able to get people to commit to some of the things they agreed to during the black lives matter campaign uh we see that there've been some significant uh, uh limitations to people's ability to put an a uh an affirmative action and or social justice uh agenda forward um, for all kinds of good and bad reasons, but we noticed that it hasn't happened. Um, So what might you say to those things in terms of the social justice issues? Check back for part two of our interview with Professor Martin O'Mealy in two weeks. We'll go back and discuss some of her experiences growing up in Pittsburgh, And then we will dive back into our conversation about addressing social justice issues at the institutional level. This podcast was sponsored by Howard University School of Social Work's Multidisciplinary Gerontology Center. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at HU underscore gerontology. That's G-E-R-O-N-T-O-L-O-G-Y, to stay up to date. The music you hear is performed by the Howard University Jazz Ensemble under the direction of Fred Irby III. I hope you'll join me in two weeks as we explore more social justice and aging issues. Be well and take care.